Well, good morning to you. I think the last time I was here, has it, has it been a couple years? Yeah. yeah, it's been a couple years. I'll never forget it. But when we were here, my daughter was here with, and I she did special music. And uh, they couldn't be with me but today, my wife, Alina, and our daughter, Laura. Uh, she's graduating, our daughter, Laura's graduating next weekend in uh, education. And she's accepted a position at the Adventist School in Akron, Ohio. And uh, so that's good for us because we've wanted to move back to Ohio. So my wife and I are thinking we'd like to get right back because I grew up in central Ohio. Get right back here and and, uh, and look forward to the work. There's a great work uh, that needs to be done before Jesus comes back. And uh, it's a privilege to be with you. I've, I've never forgot my the blessing I had when I was here before. Well, before we begin, let us kneel with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are so beautiful and so wonderful. You're from everlasting. And through your wonderful Son, you have promised us eternal life. And through the wonderful, perfect working of the Holy Spirit, we can be changed day by day. We thank you, Father, for this sacred hour that you've provided for us to open up your word. And we know that when we open it, we're on holy ground. And so in that, we, we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts, our minds, heavenward, to shower wisdom upon us this morning, to understand the, the people we need to be and the work that lies before us, so, Father, we leave this service in your hands, asking you would be honored and that you would be uplifted, for you are worthy of our worship. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. This verse really was one of the pivotal verses in the beginnings of the great Advent movement. A movement that God raised up because it was necessary. So many of the Protestant churches were falling asleep. And God needed a movement to reactivate the Reformation. To prepare a people for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now this is a very interesting verse. Let's go ahead and read it. Daniel chapter 12 verse 4. We want to spend a few moments looking at the details of this and then proceed. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the what? Shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. What we have in this verse is that Daniel was to seal up a book, seal the book. What book would that be? That would be the book of Daniel. Daniel couldn't seal the book of Isaiah or Genesis or any books that hadn't been written. The only book that he could have written that could have been sealed would be the book of Daniel. But it wasn't the whole book of Daniel, was it? Because Daniel has been a blessing to God's people ever since it had been written. But it became sealed because there were certain words that were what? What's the text say? Certain words were shut up. Within this book of Daniel, and it's the only book in the Bible that is a sealed book. Genesis was never sealed. Isaiah was never sealed. 
No other book of the Bible was ever sealed except the book of Daniel. And Daniel was sealed because there were certain words, not all the words, just certain words in the book of Daniel that were shut up until when? The time of the end. Now, the time of the end is not the end of time. The time of the end is a period of time immediately that precedes the end of time. If these shut up words were only unsealed at the very end, there'd be essentially no point. There'd be no time to study these words and proclaim these words throughout the whole world. And so God would take these shut up words that were written around 550 B.C., over 2,000 years ago, over 2,500 years ago. And he wouldn't seal the whole book of Daniel. He would only seal certain words in the book of Daniel for over 2,000 years. But when the time of the end would come, those words would be unsealed, meaning the whole book of Daniel would be unsealed. Because now those certain words that nobody, nobody in the entire world could understand until the time of the end. Is that amazing? That there were certain words in the book of Daniel that nobody could understand for over 2,000 years. Didn't matter how often they read these words, they could never understand them. Now, do we know which those words are? Does do we know which words in the book of Daniel had been sealed until the time of the end that precedes just the end of time? Let's look at Daniel chapter 8. Turn to Daniel chapter 8. And if you remember about Daniel 8, Daniel's receiving a vision. And in that vision, he's going to see a ram with two horns. He's going to see a goat. He's going to see a little horn power. He's going to see quite a few things. And I want us to read a little bit here in verse 3 and on. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns, and two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. So when Daniel was in vision, he first saw the ram. Did he know what the ram was immediately? No, he didn't know right away, but he's watching this vision. Verse 4. And I saw, in vision, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast or any other kind of political power or nation might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and he became great. This represents a great nation, doesn't it? Daniel at this point doesn't know who the ram is. He will, but he's just watching this vision. And then verse 5. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat, came from the west, this is Greece, no doubt, on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and he had a great, and he, and the great, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, and he became, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and he ran unto him in the fury of his power, and I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with anger against him, smote the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power in the lamp to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now at this point, as he's watching this vision, he doesn't know what the ram and the goat represents. But Gabriel would come to him. Gabriel the angel, the angel of prophecy, would come to him. Now look at what it says in verse 20 and 21 of the same chapter. Gabriel is now commissioned to help Daniel understand the vision. So Gabriel says to Daniel in verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. So he knows what the ram represents, right? It's the kingdom of Media and Persia. He doesn't have to guess. 
Verse 21, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia or Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king who is who? Alexander the Great. So at this point of this part of the vision, did Daniel understand it? Yeah, Daniel was actually told what these things represent. Now look at the very last verse of this chapter, verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted, and I was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none what? Understood. Well, he could be talking about the ram and the goat. Everybody understood who the ram and the goat were, right? So there was something within this vision that nobody, not even Daniel, understood. But you remember what we studied in Daniel 12, 4, that there was just certain words that were shut up. And nobody understood them until the time of the end. And Daniel tells us that, yeah, he understood the ram and the goat. Gabriel told him who they were by name. But he says, you know, I considered the vision and there wasn't anybody who understood it. Now, what's important is that this word for vision in this verse is a key word here. It's the word moreh, actually in the Hebrew. M-A-R-E-H, moreh. Now, I want to introduce you to another word in Hebrew here, going back to verse 2. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. And I saw in a what? A vision. It's a different word. Hazon. H-A-Z-O-N. Some say chazon. And the chazon, the vision that he saw in verse 2, he's just saying, look, I saw an entire vision. When he uses the word chazon in this chapter, he's talking about the vision as a whole. He saw a vision by river. But when you get to the last verse of this chapter, he says, yeah, I understood the ram and the goat, but there's some nobody understood. We didn't understand what? Not the chazon, not the entire vision. He did understand part of that vision. What he didn't understand was the moreh. And you say, okay, what's the moreh, right? Because the moreh is the one thing he did not understand. Now look at verse 26 of the same chapter. Verse 26. Now the big question, what's the moreh, right? What's the thing they didn't understand? Verse 26. And the vision, the moreh, of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Wherefore do what? Shut up, thou up the vision. You ever find those words shut up before? Where do we find them? Daniel 12, 4. Shut up certain words, right? Now he's told to shut up a vision. He's told to shut up what kind of vision? The moreh. Shut up thou the vision, for it shall be for... It's going to be over a, a long period of time. Now, this vision, this moreh, was called the vision of the evening and the morning. You see, the one thing Daniel didn't understand in this chapter, he knew who the ram and the goat were. What he didn't understand was the moreh, the moreh, the vision of the evening and the morning. That raises another question, doesn't it? What is the vision of the evening and the morning? Isn't that the next logical question? And do you realize that there's only one thing in this vision that has to do with an evening and a morning? And when I say an evening and a morning, what's an evening and a morning represent in the Bible? A day. Is there a day in this chapter? If you look at Daniel chapter 8 verse 14, which is the key verse that started the great Advent movement. He says, and he said unto me, unto 2,300 what? Days. Days. You know what it actually says in the Hebrew? Evening and morning. Isn't that interesting? That in the Hebrew it doesn't say days. 
In fact, it's not even the plural. It's only 2300 evening and morning, not evenings and mornings. So what it's really saying that it says here unto 2300 evening morning. Then shall the what? Sanctuary be clean. Now think about that. On the 2300th evening and morning or on the 2300th day, what's going to be cleansed? The sanctuary. Now, let me ask you a question. How many days out of a year was the sanctuary cleansed? One day. The day of judgment. The day the sanctuary was cleansed. Everybody had to make themselves right and their fellow man on that day. And if they didn't, what happened? They got cast out of Israel. It represented the day of judgment, didn't it? Happened every year. Throughout the whole religious year, people would bring their sacrifices, confess their sins. And so the sanctuary got contaminated, so to speak, because people kept bringing their sins and their sins were transferred into the sanctuary. Only on the last day of the religious year, the whole sanctuary would be cleansed of all the sins that had been confessed. The day of judgment. And this is such a beautiful verse because the one thing Daniel didn't understand He didn't understand the vision of the evening and the morning. He didn't understand the 2300th day. Now, the 2300th day and a cleansing of the sanctuary. And if the sanctuary was cleansed each year, only on one day of the year, if you had 2300 days of atonement, how many years do you have? You have 2300 years, don't you? Now, what's beautiful about that is that this prophecy is saying on the 2300th day of atonement, which only happened one day a year, which would represent 2,300 years. But it doesn't just represent 2,300 years. It represents that on the 2,300th year, something's going to happen on a specific day. On the 2,300th day of atonement, then shall which sanctuary be cleansed? The heavenly sanctuary. And do you realize that this was written in 550 B.C., and nobody understood this verse for over 2,500 years? Now, did they not understand what a cleansing of a sanctuary was? Well, they understood with that. I mean, they, they were Hebrews, especially Daniel. He knew what all that meant, even though there was no temple at the time, right? Because the Babylonians destroyed it. So now you can begin to understand why Daniel couldn't understand this. It's like, what do you mean 2,300 days of atonement and the cleansing of the sanctuary? We don't even have a sanctuary. The Babylonians destroyed it. Now, that would mean either there'd have to be a new earthly sanctuary, which would be cleansed, or some other sanctuary. But you know, what people didn't understand for over 2,000 years is a connection between the 2300th Day of Atonement and a cleansing of the sanctuary. Didn't understand it. But in the time of the end, there would be a group of people who would investigate this. Who were those people? William Miller. Other people began to look at the 2300-day prophecy they got really excited because they believed it was what event? Second coming of Jesus Christ. It began a whole great Advent movement. And once they had the disappointment, they understood that those 2,300 days of atonement, actually Jesus wasn't coming back to the earth. Where was he going? <laughs> to cleanse the sanctuary in the heavenly, isn't it? Just exactly what this Bible said, just like this verse said. And what's remarkable is that nobody understood this until the time of the end. Now, if we were to ask the question, when is exactly the time of the end? It actually is the year 1798. It is a time when a prophecy was fulfilled 
And it got people so excited about Bible prophecy. Let me give you a little history here. You had the Dark Ages, right? Inquisition, papal control for 1,260 years. 538, 1798. People weren't allowed to have a Bible. People were persecuted anywhere from 50 to 100 million people. And do you realize that those 50 to 100 million people were persecuted in only one part of the world? And you realize that we didn't even have our first billion people till 1830. So when you're talking about 100 million people persecuted, when we didn't have our first billion until 1830, and this is persecution in only one part of the world, those are, that's why we call it the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages of persecution, the Dark Ages of knowledge. People were kept from having a Bible. But then, you know, the printing press and the Protestant Reformation, and they got kind of excited because the word was getting out. And But what was happening, though, is you had Martin Luther starting a Lutheran church and Wesley starts a Methodist church. What eventually happened to these churches? They started dying spiritually, didn't they? That's the history of every church. They start off great, and they start losing their origins, losing their focus, and they start becoming a little bit more like the world. Sound a little familiar? Yes. I tell you, friends, we got to know our roots. Why God raised us up? We've got a work to do. And that's what this whole verse is about. So what God was doing is he says, okay, I'm going to have to raise up another movement. I've got to get another reformation going. So around the 1730s, there was the first great awakening. Does that sound familiar to people? First great awakening. People got tired of all the formalism in the church. and said, we want something real. Now we, and, and then you get to the 1780s and the 90s, the second great awakening. And so there was this fervor happening in all the churches. The great missionary societies began to happen. Methodists, Baptists started working together. It wasn't like, well, I'm a Baptist, and the other says, I'm a Methodist, and we don't do anything together. No, there was a spirit of working together by the time you get to the 1790s, and the great Bible societies started happening. People would go to China. People would go to other parts of the world, Livingston to Africa, and all the places, and you start seeing all these missionaries start going out the world. It didn't matter which denomination they were from. They started working together. People got excited. In 1755, you had the great what? Earthquake. Lisbon earthquake that shook a quarter of the world and people thought Jesus is coming. And then in what is it? 1780, you had the great dark day and people thought what? Jesus is coming. All these signs, you can see God working here, right? Getting these Protestant churches waking up, trying to get some of them alive again. Signs of the soon return of Christ. And then one of the things that was most remarkable about this time was the 1260-year prophecy. Now, John Wesley wrote in his explanatory notes in 1754, he wrote in those explanatory notes, and he was talking about the 1260-year prophecy, the 42 months that represented how long the papacy would rule, from 538 to 1798. And he says this in 1754. He says, look, we know who the first beast is. We know who the little horn power is. We know it's the papacy. And we know that around 1798, it's going to receive a deadly wound. And so the Protestant world is actually waiting for this to happen. Imagine reading Wesley's notes in 1754 in about 40 plus years, the papacy's going to receive a deadly wound, and that's going to happen in your day? Would that get you kind of excited about Bible prophecy? And then you get to the 1790s, and there's the Second Great Awakening, and the Bible societies start happening, missionary societies, and you're creeping up to that 1260-year prophecy being fulfilled. And lo and behold, in 1798, just like a clock, the papacy receives its deadly wound. What do people want to do now? Study the books of Daniel and Revelation. 
And so these books began to be opened. And as they saw the fulfillment of this great prophecy that spanned over 1,260 years, they discovered another time prophecy. Which one was that? Daniel 8.14. The words that had been shut up for over 2,000 years. It's like nobody understood these words. And William Miller got there and he says, 2,300 days or 2,300 days of atonement and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And he thought, the sanctuary should be cleansed. What could be the sanctuary? And he thought, well, it, it's not like he didn't know what a heavenly sanctuary was. It was like, but why would a heavenly sanctuary be dirty? Why would it need cleansing, right? Why would a heavenly sanctuary need to be cleansing? But let's turn to a verse here, and we'll keep your finger in Daniel. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. Notice what it says here. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens. Well, what was patterned after the heavenly? The earthly, the earthly sanctuary. Should be purified with these. Purified meaning these what? Sacrifices. And if you need to be purified because something got dirty, right? Needed cleansing. So that earthly needed sacrifices for its cleansing and purification. Notice what else he says. But the heavenly things, which would be the heavenly? The heavenly sanctuary themselves with what? Better sacrifices than these. In other words, it also needed to be what? Purified. And there it was. It was in everybody's Bible. The heavenly sanctuary needed purification too. Why? Because all our sins that we confess go where? Up to the heavenly sanctuary. And just like the earthly at the very end, it'd have to be what? It'd have to be cleansed. Huh. And so as we go back to Daniel chapter 9, or chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8. And you had William Miller and other people all of a sudden finding these words that had been shut up for over 2,000 years. Now I want you to know something that's very exciting about this. Go to verse 13 of chapter 8 of Daniel. Then I heard one saint speaking. What's a saint? In the Hebrew here, it just means a holy one. So in Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, Daniel's watching, he's in vision. Then I heard one saint or a holy one speaking, and another saint or holy one said. So there's two holy ones speaking, and he's seeing this in vision. Who are the two holy ones in the book of Daniel? There's Gabriel the angel, and there's Michael. Who's Michael? It's Jesus. You imagine what he's watching here? He's watching Jesus and Michael in a conversation. Now let's go back and read that. Then I heard one holy one speaking, Michael, Jesus, and another saying, another holy one, Gabriel, said unto that certain saint which spake. So Gabriel is now saying to Jesus, now it says certain saint. Now in your margin of the Bible, does anybody have a reference in your margin of your Bible for the word certain? What's it say? A holy one. What else? Who else has some? Anybody have in your margin Palmoni? The great number? Palmoni is the word for certain here. In Hebrew, it means the great number. It's in my Bible. It's in my reference. So Daniel, or so Gabriel, speaking to Palmoni, the certain saint. That's the word for certain. Palmoni, which means great number. Who's the great number? It's Jesus. Jesus is the great number. He knows all the numbers. He knows the numbers of the hair on your head. He knows all the stars. He has a name for every one of them. Right? Okay. So, is there anywhere else in the Bible Jesus is called the great number? There's a lot of different names for Jesus in the Bible. This was inspired. 
He was called Palmoni in this verse because he's the great number. And if you expect a great number to say something, what do you think he's going to talk about? A great number. That's pretty easy, isn't it? Does Jesus give him a great number? <coughs> 2300th day. You know how great that number is? That's over one third of earth's history. There's no greater number in prophecy. No greater number that extends in Bible prophecy than the 2300 year prophecy. And once that one's fulfilled, there's time no longer. No more time prophecies. It stretches the furthest from 457 BC all the way to 18 what? 44. It's the great number from the great number. Now just try to imagine this scene. This is beautiful. Gabriel's talking to Jesus and asks him a question. What kind of question does he ask him? He says, how long? A how long question, right? Shall be the vision concerning the... Yeah, it's not the ram and a goat, is it? No, it's not about the ram and a goat. Not that he even knew what the ram and a goat were at this point. Even though he saw the ram and, and what it did and the goat, you know what really astonished him? Was the little horn power. Now let's go back and let's look at that. This little horn power, verse 11. Yea, he, this little horn, he magnified himself unto the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? It's Jesus. Oh, this word magnify is a really special word. It's the word gadol. And it means that in, in an illegal, presumptuous way, the little horn power magnifies himself as if he is, as if he's Jesus. Now, who's Jesus? He's God. But Jesus at this point, at the time of the papacy, the little horn power, where's Jesus? In heaven doing what? As our intercessor, as our mediator, and he's the only one. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way but through me, right? But you know what the little horn power is saying? He's the mediator. Isn't that blasphemous? That if you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through us. Because what he's doing is he's exalting himself as if he's the mediator to God. Isn't that what the whole papal system's about? Amen. And so Gabriel asked Jesus, and Gabriel doesn't ask Jesus about the ram and the goat. Even heavenly beings, like Gabriel says, now who's the ram? No, he doesn't say that. Who's the goat? Doesn't say that. Gabriel himself is asking a question we should be asking. Who's this little horn power that acts like it's God on earth? Because you know, friends, that affects people's eternal destiny more than Medo-Persia. More than Greece, more than pagan Rome, more than any other earthly power is this power that thinks it's God on earth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just a matter of persecuting 50 to 100 million people. It's millions of people being misled that will be lost for eternity. You and I have no idea what that number is. God knows. Tragically. It's a number you and I, it's beyond comprehension. And this is why Gabriel himself asked Jesus... Think of the question that Gabriel's asking from his heart. How long shall be the vision concerning this daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both his sanctuary and a host to be trodden underfoot? Because when he looked at that little horn power, the papacy realized how many of God's people would be trodden underfoot. How even the sanctuary would be trodden underfoot. How would the sanctuary be trodden underfoot? 
by them setting up a false sanctuary, right? A false priesthood, a false sacrifice, a false this, a false that. They would trample the truth. I'll tell you, friends, even Gabriel asked that question. And it may be a way in which even heavenly angels are saying, think, when you study, think about those important questions. Ask those important questions when you study prophecy. Because, you know, if you don't ask a question, you're probably not really searching for an answer. You're just reading. This is important that when we read, we keep asking questions. Not make things questionable. You dig and you ask questions and you find answers. That's how we should be studying the Bible. But notice that Gabriel asked Jesus a question. Now look at verse 14. And he, Jesus, said unto who? Gabriel asked Jesus the question, but in giving the answer, Jesus turns to Daniel. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if you were Daniel and you're watching the two holy ones talking, Jesus and Gabriel, and this phenomenal question. And Gabriel asks this question and Jesus doesn't look at Gabriel. He turns to you, Daniel, and gives the answer. Would you ever forget that? Never. Never. Now, to tell you how much people didn't understand this verse, these are the words of Jesus in verse 14. Anybody have a Bible where those words are in red letters? You know why? Nobody nobody didn't even know who was speaking here. Nobody's understood this verse. They didn't understand it until when? The time of the end. Until God had a movement of people, the Millerites, the Adventists, who so hungered to see the coming of Jesus, they thought this verse, this prophecy referred to the second coming of Christ. They're the ones that began to understand it. They didn't fully understand it at first. They had a little mistake in their understanding. But of all the people on the planet Earth, they knew that this 2300 evening and morning represented how many years? 2300 years. They knew it began in what year? 457 B.C. That it would end when? 1844. And they preached a lot. Miller mostly preached about being right with God. Walking a godly life. He didn't mostly preach about 1844. But he knew to prepare people for 1844, he had to preach Christ. He had to preach conversion. He had to preach about people making their life with God. Their life right with God. It's amazing. It's amazing if you look at his sermons. Now, what I find amazing about this is that for over 2,000 years, nobody would have understood this. But what's significant about Jesus being the one who speaks these words, that means that if you choose to preach this prophecy of the 2300-day prophecy, you're working with who? You're working with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who gave this. How many churches out there are preaching the 2300-day prophecy? There's just one. Isn't that tragic? And yet this is in everybody's Bible. I tell you, friends, we got a work to do to point people to the scriptures. Amen. Not to our opinions. Not to some clever ideas. To the word. And if the word doesn't convince them, nothing's going to. But everybody deserves to know that this verse is in their Bible. Now, what's exciting about this, if you turn to Revelation chapter 10... So what we've established is that the words that were shut up until the time of the end was the words of Daniel 8.14. The 2300-day prophecy in connection to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. Nobody understood until the time of the end. 
fascinating. So when you look at Revelation chapter 10 and you realize that Jesus is the one who gave this prophecy, notice how Jan, Daniel or Revelation 10 begins. And I saw a mighty what? Now, the Greek word there is angelo. It could mean minister. It could be translated messenger. So what we have here is I saw another mighty messenger come down from where? Now, who is this mighty messenger? It is Jesus. How do we know that? We need to read the rest of the verse. Look at the rest of the verse. He came down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Does that sound familiar about Jesus? And a rainbow was upon his head. That's a sign of divinity, isn't it? And his face was as it were what? The sun. And his feet as pillars of fire. Now you don't find that associated with angels, but you turn to Revelation chapter 1. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, and we'll look at beginning with verse 15. Revelation 1 verse 15. Here's the beginning of a description of Jesus. And this afternoon we may be able to look at Revelation 1. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. That is the beginning of the revelation that's actually about true education. That's what Revelation 1's about. It'll give you two different pictures of Jesus before it ever talk about, you know, the beast that everybody's going to wonder after. It says, no, you can't begin your day by thinking about the beast and all the things in the world. You begin your day with these ideas about Jesus. That's how Revelation begins. You begin your ideas with thoughts about men on earth and what's happening here without beginning with Jesus. We're not even thinking the way Revelation is written. This book is for us. And it's going to teach us how to think and what to think about. That's how important this book is to us. And we've been told if we would understand this book and study this book, we'll have a whole new religious experience. And it can't be just because we know who the first and second beast are. That's not a new experience. I mean, a lot of people who have no religious background can see some of these things happening in the world. It's by knowing Christ that we have this new religious experience. Okay? But as we go look at chapter Revelation 1, beginning with verse 14. His head and his hair were white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if it was burned in the furnace. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Revelation 10. His voice is a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was as the sun shineth in his strength. You know, what's so beautiful is there's two descriptions of Jesus here. This is actually the second description, and it's a physical description of Jesus. And the physical description of Jesus is out of what kind of form? Human form. Isn't that remarkable? That in this revelation of Jesus Christ, John actually sees Jesus in his glorified human form that he'll bear for how long? For eternity. And this is one of the things we have to see. Before we start studying the beast and everything... We have to see Jesus. And there's a second description of Jesus through verses 5 through 8, which maybe we'll study this afternoon. But you know what I find remarkable is his face as it were the sun. You and I are to shine for Jesus like the what in heavens? Like the stars. So when you go out at night and you look at the stars, you don't go like this, do you? No. You know, you just these little stars out there. And yet Jesus is the sun at like noonday. What a contrast, right? And this is important that we see that Jesus is like the sun in its strength. You can't look at the sun and become what? Blinded by it. He's so brilliant, so beautiful. And in contrast, we're like the stars, but what a privilege to shine for Jesus forever and ever. 
But these are beautiful pictures of Jesus that we need to be thinking about. So that when men say things against us, oh, oh, you know, Jesus is like Alpha and Omega. He's like the sun shineth in the strength. And, you know, friends, when we forget that, that's when men influence us in a wrong way. But when you know Jesus, it doesn't matter what people say about you or what they do to you. Because you know Jesus. You know the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll start that this afternoon. As we go back to Revelation chapter 10, look at this. It's so beautiful. And as I saw another mighty messenger angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. You know, pillars of fire, your feet, it's like stability. It's not being moved. God saw, or John saw, God's people as pillars in the temple of God in heaven, right? Right? Because that's their home. They're not going anywhere. Pillars don't have feet. Pillars don't have wheels. They're not going anywhere. They're stable. And Jesus, I tell you, friends, when we have these beautiful pictures of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing to fear. But when we see Jesus here in this beautiful description, look at verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book, what? Open. Well, if he has a little book in his hand and it's now open, that means at one point it was it was closed. What's the one book in the Bible that was shut up? Daniel. So Jesus is being pictured here and he has a little book open and it is the book of. And why wouldn't it be? Jesus is the one that gave the words of the 2300 day prophecy. And now Jesus is the one who holds the book. You know what this means? This is exciting, friends. Jesus is in this movement. This is Jesus' movement. This is not the movement of men and committees. This belongs to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. And this message, given in its purity, following Jesus wherever he goes, the devil can't stop that kind of movement. You try to make yourself like the other churches, the devil hasn't any problem stopping something like that. Because look at where they are today. Most of them don't even preach truth from their pulpits. We don't want to become like that. We want to be part of the movement where Jesus himself gave the words of Daniel 8, 14. And now here's Jesus in Revelation 10, and it's him. It begins with him, not people. It begins with Jesus, and Jesus himself has in his hand an open book, the book of Daniel. And then it says, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. Why? Because what's contained in this little book that's now opened, and when it says it's open, why is it open right now? What just happened? People began to understand which verse. Daniel 8, 14. You see, it had been sealed. The words had been shut up until what? Until the time of the end. And this is now talking about the time of the end, isn't it? This verse. Because now Jesus says, the book's open now. That must mean he has a people somewhere who now begin to understand the words of Daniel 8.14. Isn't that exactly what this is saying? It's exactly what it's saying. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. You ever do a study on the seven thunders? You can read about it in uh, SDA commentary in volume 7 under these very verses. Let's read verse 4. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. So the seven thunders were a message that John was just about ready to do what? 
He was just about ready to write it down. So it had substance. And then he was told to do what? Don't write it. So the reality is we don't know what the seven thunders are. Except that Ellen White says they're a delineation of events that have transpired under the first and second angel's message. Well, what is that? What is the first and second angel's message? When did all those begin? Well, the first angel's message began in 1831. William Miller finally began out and started preaching that first angel's message. Isn't that right? She says the second angel's message began to be preached in the summer of 1844. So, a delineation of events under the first and second angel's message would mean a delineation of events that would lead up to what great event? The great disappointment. Now, did the disciples or did the, the pioneers of our church have enough information to avoid the great disappointment? What about the disciples? Did they have enough information that led up to the crucifixion of Christ? They sure did. But there are certain things they didn't understand, right? There are certain things that blinded them to some truths that Jesus... Didn't Jesus say, I'll be dead, I'll, I'll be, and in three days I'll be raised up? He told them, he told them plainly about his death. And yet, because of a few things they didn't understand quite right, they were disappointed when he was crucified. Hid from the Jews for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus came and gave them that special information with his presence and began to explain all these prophecies to them. And it's like, oh, that's it. Now I understand exactly about your first advent. Well, this is a parallel event, isn't it? Here, our pioneers believed it was the second coming, even though there was enough information. There's a heavenly sanctuary. It needs cleansing. You know, one of the things that William Miller, and we'll continue more this afternoon, one of the things that with William Miller was, not only did they not believe that the sanctuary heavenly would be need cleansing, is that when they looked at the prophecies of Daniel, they saw four basic prophecies. Daniel 2. Four different metals, right? Ending with, the stone destroying the image, representing what great event? Second coming of Christ. And something very similar to that, in Daniel chapter 11, going flipping over into chapter 4, you have all these things leading from the day of the prophet to an end time event, and the battle of Armageddon in Daniel 11.45, and then in Daniel 12.1, you have Michael stand up. What event's that? Close of human probation, right? Now that's the end of the end of time, isn't it? I mean, at that point, time's over. And when the, when the stone destroys the image, what kind of time's that? There's no more time. That's it. Time's in. End of the end of time. But in Daniel 7, you have four different beasts. Beginning of the day of the prophet, Babylon, taking all through history to an end time event called the judgment. Right? The ancient of days did sit. The judgment, the books were opened. And then you get to Daniel 8 and you have the ram and the goat and the little horn power. But the end time event is a prophecy. It's a 2300-day prophecy. Now what William Miller believed is if, if all these three events were the exact same event, that the stone destroying the image, Michael standing up, the judgment of Daniel 7, and then Daniel 8, if he had a time prophecy for one of them, he had a time prophecy for what? All of them. So he believed that the fulfillment of the 23-day prophecy was when Michael would stand up, when the stone would destroy the image, which was the same as the judgment, that it would all happen at one time. But here's the difference. 
The stone destroying the image in Daniel 2 is the end of the end of time. The judgment scene of Daniel 7 is the beginning of the end of time. The 2300-day prophecy is the beginning of the end of time, not the end of the end of time. But when Michael stands up, it's the end of the end of time. So they're all about the end of time, but two of them are about the beginning of it, and two of them are about the end of it. They're not the same event, but they thought they were. This was some of the things they had to learn and go through. But when they went through, as we studied the rest of Daniel, Revelation 10 this afternoon, we realized they had a great disappointment, just like the disciples. But then they were corrected, weren't they? They understood their mistake that Christ wasn't coming to the earth, but he was going to his father. The 2300-day prophecy. But I want us to study a little bit more, but this, these seven thunders, these delineation of events that probably were going to help them understand maybe even better what was going to happen in 1844, he says, no, let them go through that experience. You know, sometimes when you look at that as a principle, sometimes we can look at things better and understand them better from a position of having gone through a disappointment or a discouragement or something, some, some trial. Isn't that possible? Mm-hmm. That somehow as we go through there, we can become a little wiser, mm-hmm. a little bit more understanding, a little bit more forgiving, you see? A little bit more our sense of our dependency upon God. Because if God took away every, every consequence to sin, and we would learn nothing from our choices, nobody would even seek after God. But it's as we go through these trials and we have to dig and we have to work, we got to keep moving forward, we're learning and we're growing. And so these disciples or these pioneers, they went through that great disappointment and they knew Jesus was in this movement because they had a real experience. They had set aside sin. They were ready for Jesus to come. But you know how many people were waiting for Jesus to come that day, October 22nd? 50 to 100,000 people. After this appointment, how many did you have? Less than 50. Now, I think that's probably why God didn't write the seven thunders. Because when Jesus, think of it this way, when Jesus went to heaven, what kind of church did he leave us? It was a perfect church. Those 120 people went through an upper room experience, settled all their differences. You imagine that? 120 people gathered in a room and they were perfectly in agreement with God and their fellow men. That's beautiful. And then God entrusted them with the latter rain and in that latter rain, God entrusted them with 3,000 people to take care of. 120 people. Imagine having a congregation of 120 people and God just gave you 3,000 souls. Well, you know, the only way that's going to happen is we have that same experience. When God knows we can take care of them, they're going to start coming in. And when the time is right. But you know, we started with a perfect church, and the Advent movement had to start perfect too. Because it would be the last church. And it would be the remnant. It would look just like the original. It would have to start off just the same way. Because you had 99,950 people who were part of this movement essentially because they thought, well... Just in case this is going to happen, we better go along with this. There's a difference between being converted to this message and going along with the message. 
just in case it really happens this way. This message, my friends, and Jesus must be the most important thing in our life. This message comes from him. He's Palmoni, the great number. He's the mighty messenger who opens the book. And if we're part of this in the truest sense, because we don't want to see people lost, Jesus is with us. And if Jesus is with us, it doesn't matter how many people are against us. It won't matter. What matters is to walk with him and to do the work that he has for us. That was what we must be faithful to. This afternoon, we'll go ahead and finish Revelation 10. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to get into Revelation 1 because it's so beautiful. I was speaking over at the Village Lighthouse. We had covered, you might want to get a hold of them if you're interested. We had gone through the first three chapters of Revelation verse by verse. We did it in about 12 meetings or something like that. But it's, it's, it's a book, friends, we have to take time verse by verse. What do we learn from this? What are the lessons? How does it apply to my life? You know, how does this help me to draw closer to Jesus? That's what it's all about, friends. Amen. That's what it's all about. Amen. Before we have our closing prayer, we have our closing hymn, hymn number 213.